the three year was like my cutoff of, hey, if it works over three years, that's a good sign. I've had ones run easily over 10 years. And then some of them, it seems like six months. So I always look for the simpler ideas, an idea I can explain on a little cocktail napkin, you know, Mm. we're at the hotel bar having a beer. The problem with it, though, is the simpler ideas and what I would suggest is you track both. So track if you would just follow the rules and then track what your discretion on top of the rules does and take a look at the differences. You know, which one's doing better? And you might find, oh my goodness, my discretionary trading is killing what would have been a good strategy or vice versa. The thing I have found over and over again with discretionary traders who try to do this is their back test comes out to be more or less garbage. And usually then a couple things come out. One, this podcast is brought to you by Blue Guardian, the prop firm that lets you trade with EAs or any style you like at any time. Episode 236. Folks, we're welcoming back Kevin Davey back onto the show. He's an algo trader expert who is going to share with you today a whole bunch of information around uh, trading strategies, your discretionary strategy. Will it work next year? Will it work in 10 years? You're going to get some data around that. We dive deep into this. So folks, this is a real treat for you. If you're a manual trader or an algo trader, it doesn't matter. There's tons of stuff in here for both of you. I'm also dropping a cool little video on the channel where we're breaking down a 15R trade in real time and actually happened this week and it's not just that it's the way that this trader and you can I'm not going to tell you who it is this trader explains how the market um, manipulates you and it gives you a nice little analogy to work that out so please subscribe to the channel so you don't miss it now before we get into it I want to introduce our new silver sponsor Swift Journal you can find out more about them right there now they are a trade journaling platform that also does trade copying so kind of unique got to go and check them out there is actually a 10% off coupon as well they've given me it's all one word trading nut the links are in the description so go and check that out whilst you're watching this or listening to this podcast and finally last few things going on here at trading nut we've got all those live streams please go and check them out these guys are killing it on the blue guardian challenge and also if you do sign up to my robot builders club this month of july you're going to get 25k challenge from blue guardian thrown in all right folks let's get on with the show our sponsor Blue Guardian is the only prop firm that gives their traders a tool to protect them from hitting their max daily loss and over trading. It's super simple to use. Just set the Guardian protector each day from your dashboard. Did you also know that they've just released an unlimited time evaluation with a zero trading days requirement, giving you plenty of time to hit their low 8 and 4% targets, making it super fast to get funded. Plus, it's cheaper than the 40-day time limit evaluation. Check out the link and coupon in the description to get 10% off your next Blue Guardian evaluation. All right, folks, here we are on Trading Up. We've got Kevin Davey in the house. After eight years of coming on the show, way back in the day, it was, it was episode 22 of 52 Traders. So welcome back, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Look, great. It's been great to catch up just before the show and, and find out how you've been doing, but everyone else doesn't know that. So what we're going to do today is we're basically going to go through and um, find out what you've been doing in the last eight years. Also, dive into the five-step process you've got around turning strategies, strategies into algorithms and how people who are either discretionary traders or, or looking to get into algo trading can uh, follow that path and process. So to start off with, I mean, what on earth have you been up to in the last eight years? <laughs> well, um, I've actually uh, written a few more books. So I think it was 2014, my first book came out. It was called Building Winning Algorithmic Trading Systems. And uh, that kind of started, 
you know, I always wanted to write a book and it was about trading. It was kind of cool. And um, after, since that point, I've actually written a few more books, actually four of them. Uh, One was actually, I got my kids involved in stock market trading, not algos necessarily, but uh, that was kind of neat because I got to work with them and, and do some stuff. But uh, ever since then, I've still been doing the same thing, which is basically uh, primarily my own trading, but then also working with some other traders. And uh, it's kind of interesting because in the last eight years, uh, on one hand, things have changed a whole lot. But on the other hand, things are still basically the same. And what I mean by that is they're still the same as you can still create strategies. You can still test and develop and put them to work on the markets. It's just now, eight years later, some of the tools have changed a little bit. They've Obviously, things have gotten a lot better. Tool-wise, you can automate stuff a little bit easier for building strategies. And then at the same time, a lot more people are involved in algo trading. Uh, you know, it was, it's kind of funny. I remember... When my first book came out, this was 2014, it, you know, it said building winning algorithmic trading systems. And people were like, what's that? You know, it, algo, yeah. algorithmic really didn't ring a bell. Nowadays, everybody talks about it. You know, algos, oh, algos, everybody knows about it. Um, and I guess the, the bad thing, obviously, there's a lot more competition, which makes it tougher. But most of the competition, most of the people out there building algos, uh, honestly, they just don't know what they're doing. Uh, they think the tools will just do it for them. And all they have to do is just hit the on switch and uh, everything will work out. And it and it's not that at all. Algo trading is still just like it was eight years ago, you know, probably 20 years ago. It still takes a a good process to get to where you want to be with your strategies. And that's what I think most people don't realize. Mm. And we're going to dive into that today and, and find out like, what is that process and, and how it all works. And I, I did want to mention first that, you know, so if people don't know you, you, you have won the uh, world cup of trading before and you've, you've placed a few times as well, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there were three years in a row uh, where I finished in either first or second place. So I finished first place once, second place twice. And um, that's what really started me on the path of thinking, hey, I could do this full time and maybe I am good enough to do it because I actually left uh, an unrelated career in 2008 and I've been trading full time ever since. So yeah, that's that's kind of my background way back, um, you know, because it's yeah, been a while. It looks like it was 2000. I just had a look at you. 2006 is when you won it. Is that yes. right? Yes. And so so, so you're still working at that point in time in your other career. Yeah. Yeah. So I was uh, it was I was one of those uh, hobbyists, you know, where my part time hobby became the markets. Uh, you know, I, had, I I think I was at that age where playing sports and that kind of thing was out of the question or, you know, just wasn't as fun as you get older and um, things like the markets became more of a challenge. And so that's what I started to do, but yeah, that's what 
really convinced me that those performance numbers over those three years really convinced me that I, I might be able to do this full time. And uh, I was able to uh, make that leap in 2008. And, and have you ever sort of, uh, I mean, are you still active in those in those challenges when they come up every year or have you sort of dropped out of that? that um, so after after I did that, well, um, I took a couple of years break. Then uh, I did go back into it. I believe it was 2012. And um, I might have done it a couple of years before that, but I was doing more experimental systems, ones that were super high risk, but also super high reward. And um, none of those worked out. And then in 2012, I was actually, I was doing pretty decently. And the brokerage, or the it wasn't the brokerage, it was actually like the clearing firm for the brokerage. Uh, their name was PFG. And they got involved in uh this huge scandal where basically the owner had been stealing client money for a number of years and forging all the documents to the U S government. Well, they found him one day in uh, uh, his car, I think with a hose hooked up from this tailpipe and he was trying to gas himself. And uh, last I heard now he's in federal uh, penitentiary in the U S so that kind of killed it. And I didn't participate for years after that. And then I think the last time was two or three years ago, I decided to do it and I was doing pretty well for a while. And then I over leveraged, you know, a typical story. I was, I saw who was in second and third place or saw people in front of me. I said, well, I'm going to go for broke. And it went for broke and ended up broke. You know, yeah. that's, that's sometimes how those contests yeah. work. Yeah. You know, you have to take a lot of chances and it was going well for a while and then uh, it wasn't. But yeah. the funny thing was, if I had just stayed the course and just kept trading the way I had been, I would have finished in the top. I think I would have been three or fourth, third or fourth. Uh, but I didn't do that. I was going for like one or yeah. two and that wiped me out. But, yeah. hey, you know, that happens. It's interesting uh, that I mean, look, looking at the percentages there, they seem to be creeping up over the years. Like, so people are, you know, more people are probably entering, and then you know, some people are, are getting lucky with the strategies and, and putting too much leverage on it. Um, it's interesting. I had another trader on Jared Goodwin who highly recommended your book, Entry and Ex Exit Confessions of a Champion Trader. Um, yes. he was like, this is the, this book's brilliant. He was absolutely raving about it. So, so we know we've got the right person on here to, to, to share with us today. So let's dive into, um, this process around automation and even from somebody who was a discretionary trader or they trade like a manual system, which they, you know, place trades manually. They may be not discretionary trader, but they, they have got a manual trading system they use. How do they make that transition into automated trading from a sort of, turning that manual system into an automated one and and then the steps from there. Okay. Well, um, so yeah, I have a, a number of steps. I call it the strategy factory because the way, so I used to work in a factory. I was in charge of uh, quality assurance for aircraft parts. And that's kind of where the whole idea of a factory came out. The way I look at it is trading ideas are your raw material. And they come into your factory, just like if you were building watches, you'd want metal, right, to come in as your raw material. 
So it comes into your factory and then you put it to work on certain machines. In the process I use, they're tests. You run different tests. You run some optimization. You run Monte Carlo. And I'll get into each one of those. And then what comes out of the factory is either a finished strategy that's pretty much ready to trade or more than likely it's going to be scrap material. It's going to be junk because most ideas fail. Uh, probably at least 99 out of 100, maybe more like 999 out of 1,000. Most things, when you include costs, your slippage, your commission costs, most things, most ideas, trading ideas, just lose money. Uh, and, and the ironic thing is where a lot of people get tripped up is most trading ideas, when you don't have those trading costs, can actually make money. So a lot of times the the difference between making and losing is all due to those trading costs. And unfortunately, you can't really avoid those things. Mm. So that's a problem. But for me, this process, this strategy factory process, all starts with goals. And you can think of it as, hey, I want to do something in my life. I want to get a job. I want to get into this university. I want to find a life partner, whatever it is. You kind of have to know in advance that you want it, what you're looking for. You just don't go out and randomly, oh, today I'm going to go get a great job. Uh, you know, you've got to prepare and that kind of thing. And that's the first step. Most people get messed up right there because they don't have a goal. Their goal is to be a trading billionaire. Okay. And which is great. Okay. Who doesn't? But the problem is when you have that mindset of, hey, I, I'm just going to be the ultimate trader, you won't know when you actually have something good because what you're looking for is something that's unusually great that just doesn't happen. Hmm. So, meaning you'll build a strategy that, hey, it might produce a nice return and might help you out in your investments a lot, but you're looking for something great. So you just kind of discard it and try to make it better and making it better usually makes it worse. So yeah. that's the first thing. Then the next step is the trading idea, which, you know, I kind of mentioned is your raw material. And the neat thing about that is people think, Oh, I have to think of this, uh, idea, you know, I have to come up with some kind of theory on the copper market and supply and demand and, you know, all this stuff. And the reality is you don't have to. What you have to do is have things, have ideas that you find. I find a lot of my ideas either in books or in the internet. Then I kind of change them a little bit and say, well, you know, this doesn't make sense to me. It's got to sort of feel okay to you although um you know it doesn't necessarily have to but if you want confidence in it you're going to have to believe that what you're testing might work all right folks i'm here at blackpool markets headquarters in auckland new zealand you can see this amazing view behind me of auckland harbour now talking about views if you do want to get free trading view pro then all you need to do is trade one lot a month at blackpool markets and they're going to give you free trading view pro so folks to find out more click the link in the description below or the card above and what, what would be like an idea where you sort of would look at it and go, eh, 
it's not really sort of enough for me to 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 add that to my arsenal of of like ideas I'm going to try. Good, really good question. Well, let's just say you used a lot of people use uh, like a data mining software or a strategy building software, and let's just say it came back and it said, "Here's a strategy that works." There's 20 different inputs and there's all these rules for entry. There's five different rules for entry, eight different exits, and this will work. Something like that would immediately scare me away because I'm looking for simple ideas. And the reason is, is because the, usually the more complicated your idea is, the more curve fit it is you know the more parameters that can be adjusted usually means more curve fitting so i would look for something really simple like a breakout okay and people say oh man breakouts oh, they fail 80 percent of the time i don't know if that's true but you could have a breakout based system and you just say hey when the close is the highest close of the last 10 bars 20 bars whatever that might be a good time to get in the market because you're trend following. And you know, there's no way it can keep making new highs without a breakout at some point. Mm -hmm. So something like that would be a real simple trading idea that could potentially work. So that's kind of the two opposite ends. So I always look for the simpler ideas. One, the, the way I describe it to people, it's an idea I can explain on a little cocktail napkin, you know, mm. we're at the hotel bar having a beer and say, well, here's, here's what I think. It's not a volume of pages and pages. Yeah. Um, you know, simpler tends to be better. The problem with it though, is the simpler ideas tend to produce equity curves that are a little more uh, rocky, a little more, uh, you know, the smoothness just isn't there. They have bigger drawdowns, longer drawdowns, and people look at them and they're like, well, this doesn't look that good. And that's almost precisely the point why they work going forward, because they don't look as good. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever, or for anybody listening who's ever tried trading a perfect looking back-tested equity curve yeah. and how that's turned out for them in real time. Typically, they don't turn out that well. You know, yeah. the more optimized it is, the more likely it is to fall apart. Yeah. So what 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 about like just sort of putting hypotheticals in here? Like, so somebody with a with a discretionary or a, let's call it a, a, their own personal trading system, which is you know got ten rules in it and you know multiple exit rules and all this sort of stuff. They then go, I'm right. I want to automate that. What what sort of what would be your advice to them to get that into a sort of feasible state where you think that, okay, well, I know with, with all these rules, it's going to be like, you know, you're, you, you, you've got too much in there already. What would be right. your advice to them? Well, I mean, even, even though, thing, even though I suppose, even though it does work for them from a, you know, placing the trade manually and going through all the analysis in their head. Yeah. I mean, the first thing I would do is program everything you possibly can and then run some kind of back test on it to see how it works. The thing I have found over and over again with uh, discretionary traders who try to do this is their back test comes out to be 
more or less garbage uh, as far as the results are awful. And usually then a couple things come out. One, uh, you know, they programmed it wrong. That happens sometimes, obviously. Mm. Two, there's other things they're considering that they did not program. That's really very likely. You know, it might be mm. they woke up today and uh, got in an argument with their wife or spouse, and now they're mad and they're trading mad. And they might trade totally different than they would the next day where, uh, you know, they bought their wife flowers and now it's a great day. So people's, uh, you know, their mindset going into the day, if they don't program that, uh, it can have a big effect. And a lot of times what they, what else they do is sometimes they'll ignore certain things. You know, they'll say, well, I'm only going to buy if a higher high is made in the first 30 minutes. Maybe that's one of their Mm. guidelines or rules. And then later on in the day, all their other pieces of their setup are in place, except for that first one. They might say, well, you know, I got nine out of the 10 things. I'm going to go for it. And so you can't really duplicate that in a back test you know, of following your rules sometimes and not following it the other times. So for discretionary traders, um, I've very rarely seen where they could program exactly what they were doing and have it come out and mimicked their prior results. Uh, And like I said, usually when I've done it for some people where I've actually tried to program things for them, um, I become the scapegoat, you know, well, you're an idiot, Kevin, you don't know how to program because this isn't what my system does at all. And, uh, you know, <laughs> what yeah. am I going to say to that? I would say, well, I did program what you told me. And then it, it usually comes out, oh, I didn't tell you about this or this. And yeah, exactly. sometimes I do this. Yeah. I've been there myself. <laughs> I've been yeah, there myself so, where it's like, I wouldn't have taken that one. Well, yeah, but this is what we programmed in. But you right. wouldn't have taken it. But I mean, like, we don't program in it and the robot's going to take it regardless. Right. And so uh, in general, what it comes down to is discretionary traders have a do have a very tough time switching to algo trading uh, and vice versa, because, you know, algo traders want to be, hey, these are the rules. I follow them. And whatever happens, happens. And discretionary traders are a lot more flexible so uh, a lot of people end up somewhere in the middle where they have these rules. Sometimes they always follow them. Sometimes they never follow them. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a bad way. I personally try to avoid that because what I've found is the mindset of a discretionary trade and an algo trade are totally different. You know, discretionary, you're always wondering if you're right. And algo trading, you can't have that because you'll just interfere with it. But for people out there who are somewhere stuck in the middle, what I would suggest is you track both. Okay, so track if you would just follow the rules and then track what your discretion on top of the rules does. And maybe every couple of weeks or every month or whatever, Take a look at the differences, you know, which one's doing better. And you might find, oh, my goodness, my discretionary trading is killing what would have been a good strategy or vice versa. Mm. 
my discretion, oh man, it's it's taking the right trades. It's overruling the algo at times. That's working great. But either way, then you have data to at least back up your decision to say, yeah, I'm doing the right thing. Um, what ends up happening with a lot of people is they just flip back and forth. They'll follow their rules exactly. They'll lose money, maybe over a week. They'll say, oh, I'm going back to discretionary. They'll go back to discretionary. They'll lose with that. And, oh, I'm going to go back to algo. And you know, mm. they just keep flip-flopping and never get anywhere. And that, that's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it, actually you hit the nail on the head there around, I think the, the discretionary traders I get on are very much like, yeah, this is my system, but I don't, you know, and I'll tell you exactly how it works, but I'm not going to take every setup because of X, Y, Z factor that I've factored in. And it could be like an upcoming news event, or I've decided not to trade like a, this news event, or I've decided not to trade that, or um, it could even be just, uh, I had a day off and oh, there was the, the losing day or, you know, these little things in there that, that, um, or, or it's like, I'm, I'll trade this market one day and then now this market lost a couple. So I'm going to go try another market. And then I'll, the next thing I'm on a, on a third market and it's like, well, your robot's not doing that. Your robot's just going, I just carry on trading the same robot, uh, same, uh, same market. Right. So it is, it is right. interesting. I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. Um, so you're talking about ideas. And yep. I think we've sort of done that to death. So what's the, the next phase from the idea to the conception? Okay. That work? And the next uh, big phase is like a testing phase. And there's really two steps that are part of that. There is a, what I call initial testing or preliminary testing. And then there's what I call, uh, what I do is walk forward optimization. So we'll talk about each briefly, but the first step is just what I call preliminary testing. A lot of ideas, you don't need to run through your whole database of, you know, 15 years of history to say it's a bad idea. Uh, what I found is a lot of times you can run a small test on a couple of years of data and you find out, oh, this, this idea is garbage. It's never going to work. And then you can quit quickly, cut your losses, move on to your next idea. That has a couple really nice benefits. One, it obviously it saves you time. Two, it keeps you from using all your data because you know the, the theory goes every time you test over your whole database, you're using all your data. Eventually, you're going to come up with something that works just by uh, pure luck. And so the fact you use only a couple of years of data makes it much harder to then later on down the road, you know, have something uh, good on all 10 or 15 years or whatever you back test on. So this preliminary testing is a really great way to speed up the process, eliminate the really bad strategies that there's just no way they're going to work and move on to the better ones. And once you move on to the better ones, I do my primary test and it's called walk forward testing. I won't go into details just in the interest of time. People can look it up. Um, it's a pretty popular technique. It's not uh, just optimization where everything's in sample and you know you take 10 years of data, you optimize it, you get the best parameters and then start trading. And it's not out of sample where you say, oh, I'm gonna test the first seven, leave the last three. 
what it is is it's an ongoing optimization and parameter change. I think I, I think what I know it, it. Yeah. What it does is it really allows you to get the most out of sample data possible out of your testing. So mm -hmm. it, it's a way to sort of trick uh trick the data, trick yourself, I don't know. But it gets you a lot of out of sample data and the way it works is out of sample data is the best way to predict your future performance. I mean, certainly anyone who's ever optimized a back test knows whatever those best parameters are will probably not keep going at the same rate that they were during the back test. Everything degrades because mm -hmm. there's always, the way I look at it, there's always some luck involved in a good back test. The, the, but the bad part is you don't know how much luck, you know, was is the strategy 90% and luck's just that 10% to make it look a little better? Or is it 90% luck and 10% strategy? You don't know. Mm. But when you go live, well, what happens usually is the luck, whatever it is, the good luck usually either turns into no luck or worse yet, it turns into bad luck. And then that's why a lot of those equity curves just fall off. Walk forward helps you avoid a lot of that. Of course, there's a ton of little nuances to walk forward testing. Um, you know, most trading software includes walk forward capabilities now. But from what I've seen, a lot of the software is built in such a way that it encourages you to do really dumb things with it and to ruin it so you got to be super careful with walk forward because if you do it wrong uh you're going to get bogus results mm. so at one example just one example of doing it wrong would be to run your walk forward test you look at your equity curve and it looks pretty good but you think you could improve it so you make a change to the strategy and run the walk forward test again that's a, a huge no-no. And the reason is, is because once you run that test twice, well, now it's not really unseen data, out of sample data. You know, you optimized yeah. with it, you know, because you took the, which one's better, the first one or second one? Oh, the second one, I'm going to use that. Well, that's an optimization. Tired of missing trades or spending hours at the charts? Introducing my Robot Builders Club. With our platform, you can build bots in minutes, not weeks, without any coding required. Get lifetime access to my video course, VIP community, and over 40 ready-made robots. Works with MT4 or MT5, and as a bonus, you'll get three months access to my Robot Lab, where we build and test bots on live calls every week. Join the hundreds of traders who are trading smarter, not harder. Click the link in the description to learn more, get the free training, and download a free robot. What can I ask a question on the walk forward? So with the walk forward, like so you you obviously optimize on the on this on the you know the, the in-sample data, right? You get a you yes. get a setting that you're gonna go, okay, well, I'm gonna take these settings, like you've got three parameters, for example, and right. then you're gonna use those three parameters on the data you, you haven't seen yet. Yeah. Right. When you when you're picking that uh set of parameters from the first set of data. How are you able to be consistent across the different chunks of outer sample data that you test on so that the set that you take is going to be the same as the set you take to go live with 
when you're finally going live with that you know final set of settings that have been optimized so i, I basically the question is when you optimize the data how do you know that you know if you're not just going i'm going to take the um, one with you know the highest profit factor for example which might be the easy way to do it and then i'm going to only test the one with the highest profit factor how do you pick that one to, and then make it consistent so that you're not sort of just using discretion to pick the optimized result that you know when you yep. pick the final optimized result to go live it could be that you've now changed the way you've done it and you've screwed the screwed the pooch sort of thing you know yeah that um and that uh is a great second example of how you can mess up walk forward if you do something like that so what you would do is whatever parameter whatever um it's called a fitness function that you want to measure that in sample performance too so it could be net profit could be profit factor could be something based on drawdown uh and i in my course i teach some that i've based on looking at millions and millions of back tests so i pick a fitness function up front before you do the test you say for example you mentioned profit factor so let's go with that i'm going to use profit factor and so every little period I look at, I'm looking at the parameters that had the best profit factor. And I'm going to use those parameters for my next mm -hmm. out of sample period. And you keep going with that. And then when you get to the very end, it'll say, okay, this profit factor gives these parameters, use them for the next six months or year. And then at the end of that year, you'll re-optimize again. And so you'll keep going into the future as you trade it live. So that keeps the, the data fresh and it's doing it the way you used to do it. But the key is you don't want to uh, guess at these things in the midst of the walk forward test, because that will give you, like you said, it'll, it'll drive you nuts because yeah. one period Profit factor might be the one that will give you the best parameters for the net for the out of sample. And the next one might be net profit. And the one after that yeah. might be percent wins. So you just got to pick it up front. The downside to that though is since you're picking one up front and you're just running with it, most of your walk forward tests are going to fail because there's going to be periods where those parameters out of sample just don't work good um and that's that's just what happens but that's why it's such a good test because the ones that make it through all those are you know the kind of cream of the crop type strategies and those are the ones you want to look at trading uh but when you've gone through like uh say let's say you're doing six runs of walk forward to to get your final where i'm going to go live with with this right. set of parameters how many times have you got to like number five and the things just tanked and you're like, oh, so close. Well, I use, uh, when I, when I used to do it manually, which, uh, I encourage everybody who's never done walk for do it like that manually, step-by-step. Step. Um, I went through a lot where, yeah, you go through the first couple, yeah, this is going to work. And then you get to that last one and it falls apart and you're like, ah, oh. and then you, you know, now I got to start over. You see that when you do it manually. Now, most of when I run walk forward is all uh, just generated all at once. And so you see the whole curve at once. Okay. Uh, but you still, you see the same thing where there will be maybe one specific period 
where it just looks awful and maybe all the rest look good. Um, but, and sometimes it's hard to tell. And so that actually is why I do my next step, uh, unless there's anything else to talk with testing. Oh, I, just, I just want to uh, quickly okay. ask about, about the numbers and stuff. So like in terms sure. of what, what, when you say, you know, something not looking good or something looking that looks solid, what numbers are you looking at to, to give you like confidence? Okay, so I usually look at uh, return to drawdown. So, and the way I calculate it is that next step in my process, it's Monte Carlo simulation. So it's what it does, uh, it takes all the trades that were part of your walk forward test, which are all out of sample, and then it randomly mixes them up and you simulate new equity curves. So you simulate a couple thousand different equity curves that are with those same trades, just in different order. Then what you do, or what the software does, actually I just have an Excel spreadsheet. It's actually on my website, people can get it for free. What it will do is it will generate statistics of risk of ruin, starting with a certain capital, uh, median drawdown, median return, and another parameter, that's called the return to drawdown ratio. And that's the one where if it's above a certain threshold, I will consider it for trading. If it's below that threshold, it usually just gets tossed away. Um, and that turns out to be a very good metric because it encompasses not only the profit you can make, but the drawdown that you have to endure to get to that profit because ultimately, that's what's going to kill you. Uh, you know, the profits don't kill you. It's that drawdown. And if that return to drawdown is too low, uh, you're never going to be able to trade it uh, in real time, either financially or psychologically. Um, and so that's that becomes like the what I'd call the key metric in all the stuff I do. If I had one number, if somebody said, hey, you can only have one number to say, yes, trade this or don't trade this strategy. What would it be? It would be return to drawdown. And what's after. your sort of optimal number? You know, what do you want to see it to be being above? Um, I'd like to see it. And I mentioned this in my first book. I like to see it above two. Uh, so meaning the way to think about it is let's say your strategy produced 40% annual return you'd like to never see a drawdown above 20% on average. Right. Um, if it's a one-to-one, -one, that would mean, hey, a 20% return means a 20% drawdown. That's a lot of risk for that return. Now, that's based on the way I do the walk forward test. Obviously, when you go live, things always degrade. But a lot of professionals hedge funds, commodity trading advisors, those kind of people, they hope for a one-to-one -one return to drawdown, and they're happy with that. So that just kind of gives you some perspective on what they're, they're kind of looking for. Mm. Uh, for those people interested, it's also a lot of times, depending on the time frame, it's referred to as the CalMAR ratio. Uh, it's a very good number, though, to use. Now, the other side of that, so for years, I said, okay, well, there's a minimum threshold. And as part of my course, 
uh, students submit strategies and we have uh, contests and that kind of stuff. We have a club where we share strategies. What I found after a few years of it, I analyzed uh, like 1,500 strategies that students had submitted to me. And I also found that there's an upper limit, which in fairness to my students, I won't reveal, but it basically says, hey, if your strategy looks too good in the back test, it's probably not going to work live, right. uh, which is makes total sense. I just was never able to put a number on it until I had students produce their own strategies. And then I looked and I said, wow, you know, if this return to drawdowns above this level, your chances of, of having a successful strategy go way down. Doesn't eliminate it. You can still have a successful strategy, but you know, if you play the probability game, which mm. you know that's what trading's all about, right? Is probabilities. Your chances of any particular strategy being good are definitely lower with a much yeah. higher return to drawdown. So there's a that's sweet spot in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, and and you want to see that on both the uh, the in sample and out of sample walk forward results you want to see this you know around about a two or i suppose i suppose you, over a 15 year test you might be happy with you know some are dropping down below 1.5 or one and then some are at three is that sort of how you look at it um i look at well first i don't look at any of the in sample data so the in, the only thing i'm looking at is the out of sample data that's all stitched together into one equity yeah. curve and I look at it as one whole number. All so right. I don't look at the individual mm. out of sample components um, because sometimes those, yeah, those could go lower, but what you wanna see is over 10 to 15 years or so, you wanna see that the strategy has that value, that return to drawdown over the whole period. So you're mm. taking trades when you do the random simulation, you could be taking a few trades from year one, some from year 15, some from year five, six, 10, you know, you just put them all together. And so what it means, and the, the reason it, it's nice is because if you have an equity curve, let's say that the first five years are just awful. And then from that point on, it looks great. It's probably not going to pass. And, and, you say, well, well, maybe I should just eliminate those first five years. That's what most people will do. I've seen it over and over where people will say, well, those first five years, that was 15 mm -hmm. years ago. It doesn't matter anymore. So they'll look at the results. They'll see bad results at the beginning. And then they'll just chop it. And they'll say, I'm only going to look at the last 10. That's a terrible thing to do. Uh, but people do it. And so the way I do things, I'm looking at that data no matter what it says, because once I generate it, I can't dismiss it. And I look at one number for the whole curve. And if that's good, then yeah, I realize there definitely would be times where over the last six months, the return to drawdown is awful. Mm. Uh, but that's to be expected. What you're looking for is long-term expectancy, long-term profitability, realizing there's going to be a lot of dips along the way. And why did you land on 15 years? Um, there's a couple of reasons, and it wasn't always 15 years. It's probably about 15 years now. 
Um, a lot of it has to do with just the quality of data. So I mainly trade the futures markets. And what you had in the uh, mid-2000s, and it probably started, well, it started before then, but you had this transition from pit trading to electronic trading. And what I've tried to do is just use the data that's more electronic trading because it tends from what I've seen, just tends to be more reflective of what's going on now. The pit trading, while, yeah, those prices are still useful sometimes, then the market's kind of fundamentally changed a bit back then. And uh, the other thing you had with some of this older data, for example, in the eggs, uh, the Chicago Board of Trade used to have a day session, which was pit traded. And then they'd had a, this, what they called a Globex night session, which just traded for a few hours at night. And that was electronic. So depending on your data provider, you may or may not get both put together or um, they might leave one out. Uh, all sorts of weird things I've seen with different data providers. And it just got to the point where I said, well, hey, you know, 2007, 2008, somewhere around there, uh, data from that point on is is fair, more, uh, what's the word, not concise. It, it's more like regular. It's more consistent with yeah. itself. And that's what I like to use. Um, but that being said, if I ever, if I tested on that data and then decide to go back and test on more for some reason, uh, that data better look good too, or at least the results or else that strategy is yeah. getting tossed. Right. And, and in terms of like the number of trades, you'd sort of want to see one strategy take in a, in a year for it to be, you know, something viable that you're going to, you know, if it's taking two trades in a year, is that going to be enough for you to go, well, 15 years and times 15 is 30 trades. What are you, what number are you looking for in terms of number of trades? So I usually relate it to the number of uh, variables that I'm optimizing or the number of inputs. So let's just say I'm optimizing one or two inputs. I would want to see somewhere around maybe 100 trades at a minimum. Obviously, more the better. What you don't want to do is have, well, first of all, you don't want to have 20 inputs that you're optimizing first off because that's bad. But let's say you did it, you'd have to literally see thousands of trades before you've, you'd feel comfortable that you wouldn't be curve fitting. So it's a combination of the two. But I generally uh, only like to keep a few inputs that I optimize, so five or less. And if I find when I'm optimizing more than that many inputs, um, it just leads to curve fitting. Mm. And so, so you're talking 100 trades over the 15 years or one year? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've I have systems that trade 100 trades over 15 years. That's not a lot, and a lot of people go, "Oh man, that's statistically not significant." Um, and I agree. And sometimes it's not, depending on the number of inputs you're optimizing. But uh, at the same time, it does work. So you don't necessarily need thousands of trades. To get something to work you know but that being said too the fewer trades you have the uh, you do have more uncertainty you know things can go wrong as far as just losing streaks where 
you know, if you have thousands of trades, um, yeah. that that would be my goal all the time. But you can't always get that. So, so on average, what would you say you typically over that fifteen year period would be your average number of trades you'd get for um, strategy? I would say most of my strategies have somewhere around, I would say, thirty to fifty. Uh, I'll say thirty to seventy trades a year. So about one trade a week. Okay. I tend to be. I, I do a lot of swing trading, so they tend to be longer term. So I'm looking for uh, systems a lot of the time where if I'm wrong, I'm in a day or two. But if I'm right, I'm in a week or two and get and take advantage of a trend. So that's typically uh, uh, what I look for. But 50 seems to be like a good uh, mm. uh, average for a lot of my systems. And in terms of like going live, so... Um... What's your what's your process around that first? Okay, so so after we talked about the Monte Carlo simulation and we get through that uh, return to drawdown, then that's basically all you're testing. the The biggest next step before you'd go live is what I call incubation. Um, you know, if you the way I think about it is, if you have little baby chicks uh, and you're trying to make them survive. You put them in a little box with a light bulb to keep them warm and keep them safe. I like to do that with strategies. And the way I do it is just by not trading with real money right away. I put them on a shelf for six months to a year. I'll look at them every month, but then not change them. But then after that period of time, look at what happened the last six to 12 months of real time. How did they perform? And you'll usually see one of two, well, one of three things, really. One, you'll have some strategies that just collapse during that live test period. Now, it's live without real money, but if you can rely on your back test, it's a good indicator because you overfit. You did something wrong. Or maybe the market fundamentally changed. Okay. Um, those just crash. So right there, you've saved yourself money by not trading those. Then you see some that are just kind of flat to down. That might be strategies where there was a lot of good luck in your back test, and now the back test uh, is over and real time's taken over. Your bad luck shows up, uh, and those don't do much. Those still might be okay in the future. You don't know. And then, of course, there's strategies that, continue on sort of the same slope as your back test, maybe a little less, usually less. Those are the ones that you would consider live trading. And this is really hard to do. Uh, people think, oh yeah, I'll just incubate it. Well, one, you'd, if, you, if you're gonna do it 100% right, you would develop a system today and then you would not even think of trading it for another you know, six months till 2024 at this point, the time of this interview, right? Um, and people are like, well, I can't wait that long. I just spent all this time building it. I want to trade it. You know, I'm leaving money on the table. The reality is I've surveyed my students again a couple of times. Does this step save you money? Has it saved you money? One time, 88%. Another time, 90% said, yes, this has saved me a significant mm -hmm. amount of money by waiting with strategies. But like I said, it's really hard psychologically to do. 
because everybody wants to trade. That's why you're doing it. You're not building strategies to sit on a shelf, right? And then that goes back to the whole thing I was talking about earlier with the factory, because if you're a factory, you keep churning out stuff. So yeah, now you have some systems waiting for six months, but in the meantime, you're building more strategies and you know, six to nine months, 12 months from now, some of those first strategies will start going online, maybe real money. And then there's another batch following them. And then it just becomes an ongoing thing. And so it's just like a startup cost, if you will. Mm. But once you get going, then you're always going to have this pipeline of strategies ready to go live. And the cool thing about them uh, for people thinking about this is one, you've got a back test that shows its performance and that was good. So that right there, hey, that's good. Two, you've got real-time performance that verifies the back test, which was out of sample. So now you've got like this verification that, yeah, what I did is good because I couldn't have cheated because this is all new data. And uh, with those two things, you'll have a lot more confidence that, hey, maybe this system will work going forward. Uh, that's a huge step in the process. And then the last part of my process is, okay, now you have something that passes this incubation. You want to make sure it fits with what you're doing. You want to make sure you're diversified. Uh, you want to make sure there's not a lot of correlation. You know, there's not a lot of advantage to developing 10 crude oil strategies that all act the same way. Mm. You know, that you can't do that. You've got to be diversified. And that's the other key to a smoother equity curve. We could talk for a whole hour on just diversification, but you want to make sure your strategy fits in with what the other stuff you're doing and doesn't really increase your risk. If anything, it should decrease it. And when you have all that in place, then uh, you're more or less ready to go live. Because when you're doing your your testing, I mean, are you testing across like dozens of markets and then picking out something that works on one particular market? Or are you then, how are you sort of working with all the markets and stuff? Um, so I do it a couple of different ways. One, sometimes I have an idea that's a particular market. So for example, I have a crude oil strategy that I give to my, some, my students that was specific for the crude oil market because of something I saw in what crude oil does. Okay. So that one, I didn't even try testing it on other markets because they said, well, it's for crude oil. Then there's other strategies where I will test it on multiple markets and also multiple bar sizes. And a lot of people might think, well, wait, that's if you just look at everything and pick the best one, uh, you know, isn't that just optimizing based on market? Well, it could be. So you got to be really careful how you do that. And again, it, it all comes down to having a, a like a structured approach that, you know, I'm at a point where I I can say, well, and when I do testing this way, I know what the results are going to look like in the long run. So I can do certain things that might at first seem like you're just over-optimizing. You know, if you test on 20 markets, say, well, I'm going to trade the best one. How's that different than taking 20 values of a breakout length, you know? So you got to be real careful there. Yeah. 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 So it is a, is a bit of a, 
uh, and, and uh, you got to nav- navigate it somehow. Now, yeah. Uh, so, so in terms of like the the whole portfolio, um, actually, sorry, before I jump into that, what's your strike rate for like you know getting a test on your demo server or your sim, and then for like, succeeding and becoming something you'd trade live? What sort of percentage would you put to that? Okay, so uh, that incubation phase, roughly, probably about, uh, and this is this holds for my students too, about somewhere between 40 and 50% of the strategies will pass that phase. Okay. Uh, and so that means you still have quite a bit of fallout, but that is actually a good thing because obviously if if all of them were passing, well, then that tells you, you know, it's not a good criteria. And if all of them were failing, you'd be like, well, obviously somewhere earlier in my process, I'm messing up because nothing's working. So you have a balance roughly half, not quite, but um, those turn out to be ones that have a very good chance of working in real time. But I should say even really good chance working real time. What I normally do is I monitor a strategy that's past incubation for about three years. That's like all my research. Mm -hmm. I use three years. So I said three years of what I would say is like real money trading. That's what I hope to get out of a strategy. And with the process I use, if you get through that incubation, roughly 65, 70% of strategies will make money in real time. Um, So you still have losers in that group. So, you know, you do the numbers. Okay. Hey, very few pass the initial testing then of those only 50% pass that incubation. And then of those, maybe 30% fail in real time. So, you know, but you've really increased your odds. If you were just to pick a normal strategy and not do any of this, I think your odds of having a successful strategy are probably around 20%, 20 to 30%. Mm. And so, I've been able to bump it up to near 70%, which is huge. But, um, you know, to do that, I've done years of testing to to get to that point. So it's, uh, uh, there's a lot of little nuances to all this. And so, so the ones that, you know, you'd consider you've got them on the live, they've been trading for with that three year period. Would you, um, is there, is there a certain criteria that you'd say, okay, well, that one's going to, it's dead. It's dead. I'm going to take that off the live. I mean, is it just the fact they're losing money or some other metric that you're looking at? Yeah. So that's a great question. And um, you really have to have a plan up front for when you're going to stop trading any of these strategies. Now, it could be profit. It could be risk adjusted profit. It could be pure drawdown. It could be whatever you want. Uh, I've never found one metric to necessarily be like, Oh, you've got to look at the winning percentage over the last two months. And if that drops below a certain point, then you stop them. I've never found anything like that, but there's a lot of different ways you can look at things. Uh, So, for example, that Monte Carlo spreadsheet that I said is on my website, I, I do something called probability cones. And what you can do is you can track your equity. And if it falls out of the probability cone, that might be a good time to stop. And 
what I'm saying is there is no, might not be an optimum metric to stop, but what is optimum is having something in place before you start trading and say, hey, if this ever happens with this strategy, I'm turning it off. And the reason you want to do that is because one, at the time you develop it, you're not emotionally invested in the money and everything else. You're you're thinking more clearly, you know, mm. because you don't have money on the line right then. And <clears throat> that will allow you to have a decision that, yes, this makes sense, rather than trade a strategy and then you're losing money. And then you go into panic mode. You know, how many times is going into panic mode uh, helped you in your life? You know, where you, oh my gosh, I got to think of this all of a sudden. You know, it's why people in uh, buildings have fire drills, you know, so Mm -hmm. that when the panic sets in, you know, oh, I got to walk this way because I've done it before. And I thought about it when I wasn't in a fire. That's the same kind of uh, thinking with this. And if you do that, uh, that will really help your trading of knowing when to quit a trading system. Just have that in place beforehand. And that's a big deal. Yeah, this is good, it's good advice. Right, I've got two more questions before we wrap sure. up here. Um, so uh, have you, what's the longest strategy you've got head running that's like managed to sort of pass that three-year incubation and you're like, oh, I'm going to carry on running it or do you just cut them all at three years? Um. So I've I've run some strategies as long as like 10 years. Uh, and so the three-year test is was partly what I had good data for that I said, well, hey, if it runs three years, I'm happy. You know, that's worth the investment for building the strategy. But if it if it keeps performing after that, hey, I'm perfectly happy with running it for if it r- runs for 20 years. Uh, so the three year was like my cutoff of, hey, if it works over three years, um, that's a good sign. Mm. So uh, that's why I have that three year criteria. But yeah, I've had ones run easily over 10 years. And then some of them, it seems like six months. Uh, I had one strategy. It was great for the ES that ran for, I don't know, four or five years. And then the beginning of 2022. Just like that, it just started to go negative, uh, just down, 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 down. And, you know, I stopped it. And it, it even to this day, it's still going down. Um, but it if you had seen the, the ramp up to it, it was great in real time. It was working great. It had easily uh, over $100,000 per contract trading the ES in real profit. And then it just as suddenly as uh, that, it just turned and, you know, the market changed or whatever. Um, yeah. And it just went away. Wow. Uh, and the final question, and because I, I know I've interviewed like some of the other guys that you work, you've worked alongside Tim Ray way back in the day. And I vaguely recall all of you guys having like lots of strategies running at the same time. So what's your sort of, I mean, how many strategies do you have running now that are in that live? live uh, environment okay so right now i usually use about 30 uh 30 31 32 strategies and they're split up in 
all the different futures market sectors. You know, I have a couple interest rates, couple metals, couple energies, and and so on. There's like six or seven sectors to try to be diversified. I used to have a lot more that I'd run live. Excuse me. Um, and uh, what I've done is I've cut back because what I've found over time is even though you run correlation and you know you say oh these strategies are never correlated historically oh yeah you can run them all i'd still run into cases where just because they're the same instrument they are correlated so for example this was 2018 i had a whole bunch of es strategies and it was february 2018 the market dipped really quickly and then recovered but what happened was during that dip, most of my strategies bought, and then the market just kept going down. And all of a sudden, I was highly correlated, losing a lot of money. And the lesson out of that was I can't do that anymore. So I started trade getting to less strategies, even though I have I have a stable of 200 or so that every month I look at, hey, should I be which one should I be trading? And so I have a process for determining that and everything. But right now it's about 30 strategies. And that seems to be a good comfort zone for me where it's not too many. Because one of the things people don't realize with algos is, especially when you automate them, no matter what software you use, it's not going to be trouble free. You can't, you can't just, hey, turn it on. I'm going to come back next week, see how much money I made. It doesn't work like that. Uh, there's all sorts of issues that pop up day to day, week to week. You know, your internet will go down for an hour. Well, what happened during that hour? Did you exit positions? Are you in sync? Or your data gets corrupted or your computer just goes down. You lose power to your house or wherever, you know, your VPS, which is 99.999% reliable. Well, they didn't tell you about some maintenance they were doing where they had to reboot everybody. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's all sorts of things. Yeah. So um, what I found is the less, the fewer the strategies you have, usually up to a point, uh, it's better. So you want to have enough to be diversified. And so I have a measure for that. And as long as I'm diversified enough, I don't necessarily need to trade 100 or 200, which uh, you mentioned Tim, my friend Tim. He at one point I think was trading like 150 strategies. Yeah, that's what I'll remember. That. Um, yeah. And if it works for you, hey, that's great. But I found it's not uh, at a certain point. I don't think you get enough out of those extra strategies. You know, you have your trend followers, you have your mean reversion, maybe you have some spread trading or something. You know, you have some different techniques, but eventually you run out of like uniqueness with all your strategies as far as correlation goes. So you got to watch out for that. Now, I, I know I said I had two more questions. I actually do have another one and I just, I think I'd be the shame if I didn't ask it. What, what, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on um, AI and the, you know, the chat GPT and all the stuff that's coming online now? Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's really exciting to see all this and where it's going. Uh, unfortunately, what I see a lot of people doing now is trying to have that do all the work for them. And, you know, Chet GPT, just as an example, isn't smart enough to be able to 
give you good trading systems. It might help you determine some of the steps to use and might tell you, well, this is what I think is the best. It's kind of funny. Somebody on Twitter last week said, what are the best algo trading books? Asked chat GPT. And uh, my book was at the top, which was pretty cool. And then he retweeted it and said, hey, look, your book's the top. Um, so it is pretty smart. So AI is definitely super smart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, yeah, anything that would say I'm good is uh, yeah, exactly. you know, worth it. But um, I think there's obviously this is nothing new for a lot of uh, hedge funds and those kind of, you know, the people with the big research yeah. departments. If there's anything to AI, I guarantee you they've been using it for years already. Yeah. Um, what I do see though, are people misusing it? And that's probably the bigger thing. So just as an example, I remember back in, this was the early 1990s and the big rage was neural networks, okay? And how neural networks were going to change the trading world and you needed an algo or whatever with neural a neural net, yeah. okay? Well, look where we are now. Some people use neural nets, but most people who tried it failed uh, and they just didn't work. So you've got to realize that these are just tools and ultimately it's still going to be your brains and, you know, how you develop systems and to the psychology, you know, the psycho the psychological part of trusting an algo or trusting your discretionary trading and you know dealing with all those emotions that's a bigger that's still going to be a big part so long story short i think ai will be uh make things a lot of things more useful with trading it'll make coding easier probably and maybe eventually it'll build strategies for us but um i wouldn't expect that anytime really soon Awesome. Brilliant. Well, look, um, let's, look, let's wrap up here. So, uh, Kevin, first of all, how do we, uh, how do the folks get hold of you? Sure. Um, the easiest way is just go to my website, kjtradingsystems.com. You can find my contact info there. You can also find my YouTube channel. It's, I believe it's called Algo Trading with Kevin Davey. You can always just uh, type it, Kevin, Kevin Davey into YouTube, and I should be the first one that comes up. You can reach me through comments there. Uh, I'm KJ Trading on Twitter. You can send me messages that way. So there's a lot of different places where you can uh, uh, get in touch with me. Brilliant. Well, look, a big thank you to Kevin uh, for sharing with us today. Everything we've discussed here, along with the links he's just mentioned, are all going to be in the show notes. To find them, simply search for Kevin in the search box, and it'll be the later episode, not the first one, uh, on tradingnut.com. Until next time, I wish all my listeners trading happiness and success. So there you have it, folks. Interview done and dusted with Kevin, second time around. Uh, I, I think this one was way better than the first. I was able to ask so many more in-depth questions, and hopefully you got a ton from it as well. Now, remember, there is that video that's dropping on the channel, 15 hours. Uh, a unique way to, uh, I suppose, remind yourself of manipulation and see what traders are doing uh, who are potentially manipulating the market coming up on the channel. Hit subscribe, like on that YouTube channel to make sure you catch this. And remember to check out Swift Journal, my new sponsor, as well as the live streams over there on TradingNut. Tons of them. I think we've got 10 this week covering London, Asia, and New York. And a new live stream are coming up next week as well. So stay tuned for that. And last but not least, the Robot Builders Club, we've got that promo on you get that 25k blue guardian challenge when you join this month of july all right folks have a great trading week and we'll see you in the next one